We come now, brethren, to the preaching of God's Word, and I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, and the first chapter, the book of 1 Peter, and the first chapter, and I'll be reading and then preaching this morning on verses 13 through 16. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, as we continue our verse-by-verse series through this letter. And I encourage you to read along silently as I read aloud this morning. Here Peter writes, beginning in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for our time together this morning, and we would ask now for the work of the Holy Spirit that he would be our teacher and guide and that he would reveal to us the truth that we are about to consider this morning. We ask for his power in our lives. We ask for the wisdom to understand your word and to apply it. We ask that our lives would be transformed in such a way that the Lord Jesus Christ is honored and you are glorified for that is our desire. That is our reason to be here today. So we ask for these things this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Brethren, it is a glorious thing to know the God of our salvation. And it is a truly wonderful thing to be so assured of our salvation that we can rejoice even in the midst of our many trials. For we know that our faith is being tested and that what we long for is ready to be revealed to us in God's time. And yet it is not enough, as we will see this morning, to simply hear and to know these truths and to rejoice at the sound of them. For while the words that we have heard from Peter in the first 12 verses of this first chapter are delightful for the believer to hear, in fact, they should bring us great joy, they are far more than doctrines merely to be admired. They are far more than promises simply to be put away on the shelf and dealt with later. But rather the truths that we've already heard were given to us as a foundation upon which we can not only place our hope, but our thoughtful and diligent actions as well. For within the heart of every true believer in Jesus Christ is a sincere desire to not only understand the truth of God, but to act on the truth of God as well. To not merely be able to explain it, but to live it. And what Peter has already set forth in this first section of 1 Peter, verses 3 through 12, should lead us to inquire of the Lord what he has for each of us to do. In fact, there is a sense this morning that as we encounter the holiness of God in this passage, we should be like the prophet Isaiah was. Here I am, Lord. Send me. Send me. And what does Peter admonish us to do here in our sermon text? Well, Peter first writes here in verse 13, Therefore, or in light of, or in view of the salvation that God has prepared for us, let us be actively preparing our minds for action with a mental state of sober-mindedness. Preparing our minds for action with a mental state of sober-mindedness. For what we have received from Peter already should not lead us to shift our minds into neutral or to stop thinking seriously and spiritually and discerningly, but rather it should motivate us to spiritually engage our minds even more and to do so with the full intent of taking right action, right action. For what occupies and drives our thoughts will ultimately and undoubtedly influence and direct our spiritual actions also. So Peter admonishes us here in verse 13 to have a spiritually engaged mind. Now I ask you this morning as we begin this message, is your mind fully engaged? Are you here? Are you thinking? Are you discerning properly? Do you have a mind that is ready to translate what we hear into spiritual action? And this is understandable because truth first enters into the mind, doesn't it? It's the faculty of entrance. 
And we are called to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37. And this is not possible if our minds are inactive. This is not possible if our minds are idling rather than being in gear. Then secondly, Peter admonishes us here in verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 to not only be ready and prepared in our minds, but to be serious-minded, to be serious-minded and self-controlled as well. In fact, these are the ideas behind this word that's translated here in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading from, sober-minded sober-minded, for to properly receive and apply the words that Peter has delivered to us, there must be a soberness of mind which realizes that what we are hearing, that what we are considering carefully this morning is God's Word. It is not merely the words of men, and there must also be this essential element of self-control which is only supplied by the Holy Spirit. For without the calming, controlled influence of the Holy Spirit upon our minds, our minds are too restless. Our minds are too easily distracted to obey this admonition from Peter. But with the Spirit's control, we can receive it soberly or with a seriousness and an urgency that it demands as God's inspired word. Then thirdly, Peter further admonishes us here in verse 13, that once our minds are prepared, once our minds are fully engaged, once our thoughts and impulses are fully subdued and controlled, we should set or ground our hope in the rich spiritual provision of God. And of course, this hope which Peter described earlier in verse 3 of this first chapter as a living hope has been given to us to sustain us during our earthly sojourn as the elect exiles of God. What is this rich spiritual provision that we should fix our fasten our hope upon. Well, Peter identifies it here in verse 13 of this chapter as the grace that shall be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. For although we were the recipients of God's saving grace in the past, when he, in his great mercy, caused us to be born again to a living hope, and we are now recipients of God's sustaining grace in the present through the inward sanctification of the Spirit, nevertheless, there is even greater grace. There is future grace that God has promised to bring to us at the revealing, at the unveiling of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this greater future grace will ensure the fulfillment of all that God has promised in our salvation. For not only has God promised to perfect us, and he has promised to perfect us, but he's also promised that great and final manifestation of grace by which you and I shall be able to see Jesus Christ face to face. 
For while we perceive him now through faith, and that's a valid perception through faith, at his appearing, you and I shall behold Jesus as he now is by sight. By sight. And therefore the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation, at the revealing, at the unveiling of Jesus Christ shall be greater than all the manifestations and demonstrations of God's grace that we have received up to this point. And because it shall be so very glorious, because it shall present to us the fullness and the consummation of God's grace towards us, Peter tells us here in verse 13 that we should set or we should ground our hope fully in it. Set or establish our hope fully in it. And what exactly does it mean to do this? Well, to set or to ground our hope fully on the grace that shall be brought to us means two things this morning. First, it means to place our full confidence in it as that which will hold us securely, that which will hold us firmly. In fact, R.C. Sproul in his commentary on verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1 writes these words, We are to place our hope fully upon the grace of God because that is where our hope finds its anchor in the grace of God, anchored in the grace of God. We cannot be pulled, we cannot be dragged off course if our faith is moored securely to divine grace. And of course, this will be evident to us if our minds are prepared to receive it. And if we are sober-minded enough to cast down any doubts that might seek to darken this truth within our minds, for when our hope is anchored to this glorious reality that God's grace will not be withheld from us, when it is anchored to this reality that God's grace will never release its grip from us, we can endure the most violent storms. We can endure the most tremendous trials and still know that our souls are held firm and secure because the anchor of grace holds. The anchor of grace holds. Then secondly, to, to set or to ground our hope fully on the grace that shall be brought to us means to have a grace-centered mindset fully and consistently. A grace-centered mindset fully and consistently, rather than just occasionally or temporarily. For the assaults against our faith, the assaults against our minds are constant and seemingly unrelenting. But a believer who has his or her hope set or grounded on the grace that shall be brought to us will not be tossed about mentally or emotionally by every sign of opposition or by every wind of false doctrine. But rather they will rejoice in the blessing of a mind that is filled with the great promise of grace to come and a mind that is sober enough to recognize that God's greater grace will prevail. God's greater grace will prevail. 
And so in responding to these truths regarding the grace of God and our salvation, there is not only a place to fix our minds and our thoughts upon, that being the promises of God, but there's a place to fasten our hope to. A place to fasten our hope to, a place to be moored securely to, and that's to God's future grace through Jesus Christ. And then let us notice as well that we should not only be prepared to think actively and soberly, but we should also be determined to conduct ourselves obediently. To conduct ourselves obediently or with full obedience. And our obedience should be based or predicated upon the fact that we've been born into God's family and that we're now God's children who are urged to obey his will. For Peter speaks to how God should be obeyed and the way he appeals to his readers here in the beginning of verse 14. Notice the beginning of verse 14. For Peter appeals to his readers, he appeals to you and I this morning as obedient children. Obedient children. Note that phrase, obedient children. This is especially noteworthy for two reasons. First, it's noteworthy because by appealing here to their status as God's own children, Peter is reminding them of what their motivation should be for obeying God to begin with. What their motivation should be for obeying God to begin with, for their obedience, our obedience, brethren, is not to be given merely out of obligation, but out of love for our Father. Who should show more love than those who have been given new life and hope through the gospel? And so it's reasonable to assume, given the fact that children should love their fathers and should seek to please their fathers out of love, that Peter is appealing here to their sympathies. He's appealing to their affections as the children of God. He is urging them to obey God, their father, not merely because it is imposed as a means of obligation, but because true love initiates this kind of response. Obedience flows from this kind of love. Then secondly, it's noteworthy because by linking these two words together, joining these two words together, obedient and children, Peter is clearly asserting that it should be the natural course of children to obey their own fathers. For obedience is the proof. Obedience is the conclusive evidence that love exists within a child-father relationship. And where sincere obedience is offered freely and willingly, it speaks to the depth, it speaks to the quality of the love that is being expressed by the child. Think about it. So the fact that Peter appeals to these readers as obedient children demonstrates his concern that they see themselves, that we see ourselves this morning not merely as servants, but as God's own children and not merely as entitled children with certain obligations, but as children obeying through love. Through love. How was their obedience to God to be demonstrated? 
Well, Peter states here first negatively that they were not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. Not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance. And this is a significant statement from the Apostle Peter for two primary reasons. And let me state them very quickly because they deserve to be considered prayerfully. First, this is significant. This is a significant statement because it reflects an understanding of the true nature of our spiritual depravity. It reflects a true understanding of our spiritual depravity and the fact that even as God's children, we are still assaulted, we are still besieged by continual temptations from our own remaining sin to conduct ourselves as we once did, as people who lived and acted out of ignorance. We all have to confess that that's how we once were. And that's how we once responded. And that's how we once lived. And that characterized our previous lives. And secondly, these words from Peter here in verse 14 of 1 Peter chapter 1 are significant because they provide us with the key they provide us with the key as to how to address this destructive ignorance that once captivated and dominated our lives and our actions and yet still operates within us, seeking to lead us back in the direction of our former lusts and passions. And how are we to respond to these destructive impulses, to these continual temptations from the flesh? Well, Peter declares here in verse 14, again, be concentrating here on verse 14, that you and I are not to conform to these passions. Notice the language. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, Peter writes here. Or in other words, don't allow the pattern of your former ignorance, the passions that once accompanied them, to be impressed upon your thinking and inserted into your actions, but in a spiritual sense, resist them. In a spiritual sense, be nonconformists. Nonconformists when it comes to your remaining sin. Be those who refuse to comply with the demands of the flesh, and instead be those who yield to the power of the Spirit. And, of course, this exhortation from Peter here in verse 14 implies several things. First, it implies that we first must understand the, the nature of the struggle that you and I, as God's children, are engaged in. For, yes, we are the children of God. Praise God, that is true. Let us rejoice in it this morning, but we have to understand that we're still in the struggle. We have to understand the nature of that struggle, and we are not called to be compliant with the demands of our former ignorance or with the demands of our former passions. We are not encouraged as well to be spiritually passive and to seek the path of least resistance at all times. We are not called to avoid conflict or warfare at all costs but rather by the grace and the enabling of God, we are to refuse to comply with the promptings and the allurements of our former ignorance and passions. 
Let me repeat that. We are to refuse to comply with the promptings and subtle allurements of our former ignorance and its passions. For to comply with the pattern of our former ignorance, to submit to the demands of our former passions, would not only be forgetting who we are, the obedient children of God, but it would be surrendering to forces that should no longer be ruling and controlling our lives. Then secondly, this exhortation from Peter here in verse 14 implies that there is a way forward for us. The way is not backwards. The way is not in the former way that we walk. The way is not in the former passions that we enjoyed. The way is forward for us. As those who were called to be spiritual nonconformists against the demands of our former lives. What is, brethren, the way forward? Do you, do you want to know what the way forward is? What is the way forward? It is by recognizing our need as God's children to be conformed to another standard of living, to another standard of behavior altogether, a standard that reflects an awareness of what God has already done by grace in our lives, and that reflects an understanding of how we are to be renewed in knowledge and how we are to be renewed in true holiness through the renewing power of the Word. In fact, Peter does not mention the power of God's Word here in this text, but he does later in this same chapter, chapter 1, when he gets to, to verse 23. Because when he gets to verse 23 in this first chapter, he identifies God's Word not only as that means which brought us spiritual life, remember, we were given spiritual life through the new birth. Not only the means of spiritual life, but it is that living and abiding word that continually works within us, that is continually renewing us as we expose our minds to it and as we order our lives after it. And this same way forward was emphasized in Romans chapter 12, and verse 2, by the Apostle Paul, you remember we were in Romans chapter 12 not long ago, where Paul says, in essence, this same thing that Peter is saying here. Remember, Paul said in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's not hard to see the parallels if we're thinking this morning, if we're prepared to think, if we're thinking soberly. It's not hard to see the parallels here between what Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 and what Peter declares in this first chapter of 1 Peter, since both places speak of the need to use our minds and both places speak of the power of the word to renew us. For God's word identifies for us the spiritual standard that we are to live by and that we are to strive after by God's enabling grace. And what is the standard? What is the standard? 
Well, let's notice that Peter answers this question by first reminding us of the character of our God. I love Peter's theology. He goes immediately to God. We want to know how we are to be. Then we must first look at God. For what God is helps to define us. What God does helps us to be in our proper place. He reminds us of the character of our God, for knowing what God is like will help us to define what we should be as his children and as we reflect his image. And what is God our Father like? What is he like? Well, Peter reminds us here in verse 15 of 1 Peter chapter 1 that the one who has called us is what? Holy. Holy. And no doubt Peter focuses here on the holiness of our God because it is God's chief attribute. In fact, Mark commented on this in our reading from the law this morning. Holiness is God's chief attribute, and we have a calling as God's offspring to reflect that same spiritual character as the one who has given us spiritual life. And so it's only appropriate that in this section of 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter is talking about our need to be conformed to a different standard, that Peter points our attention to God. To God. That's the starting place. For what we know about the holiness of God has a direct and profound impact on what we think and how we behave. In fact, look at the profound impact that the holiness of God had upon the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, which we read in our hearing this morning. For where the holiness of God was front and center, there was a sense of awe and worship. For who could stand before such a holy being? And there is among those who truly fear God a sense of profound unworthiness and yet a desire to do what pleases him. And where there is little knowledge and appreciation for the holiness of God among those who profess to know him, there will be a low standard of holiness among them. Did you hear that? Where there is a high knowledge and appreciation of God's holiness, there is a a high standard of holiness and awareness, where there's a low understanding and appreciation of God's holiness, there will be a low standard of holiness among the people who profess to know. In fact, I would submit to you this morning that one reason why there is such a low standard of holiness today among many who profess to be Christians, is the fact that there is so little preached and there is so little taught regarding the holiness of God from our pulpits in this country. And there is little interest on the part of the people in knowing God since everyone is distracted by themes of lesser importance. In fact, I commented on this very fact, not this doctrine in particular, but this fact that everyone seems to be so distracted in our men's meeting yesterday morning. 
how we seem to be distracted by the things that are not essential. And our attention has been taken away from the things that are essential, such as God and his holiness. Beloved, if the standard of holiness is to be raised in our churches, if there is to be a genuine revival and renewal of our minds and even of our land, we must hear more and focus more on God, who reveals himself to us in Scripture as being most holy. That means something. It would have some impact, a profound impact on us. Therefore, an essential part of being conformed to the Word of God, rather than being conformed to the world and its interest, is recognizing the, the nature and the, the character of the one who's called us, as Peter states here in the beginning of verse 15. And yet, not only are we to see the need for holiness, but we are to be in the genuine pursuit of holiness. The pursuit of holiness. For Peter emphasizes here in verse 15 as well, that given that our Father is holy, you and I should be holy as well. You and I should be holy. And not just in the sense that we are accepted as holy because of what Christ has done, but in the sense that you and I are daily striving to be practically holy, to be genuinely holy in our actions, in all of our conduct, as Peter states here in this passage. For Peter is not exhorting us here to a mere profession of holiness, but he's exhorting us to the practice of holiness. Not just the profession of it, but the practice of it. And believe me, brethren, there is a big difference between the two. It's easy to profess it. It's more than difficult to practice it. For often what passes for holiness among professing believers today is merely outward conformity to some religious activity or to some religious expectation. And yet when Peter speaks of holiness here in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 15, he is speaking of the actual striving that is required to be a genuinely holy person. In fact, our confession of faith and its helpful chapter on on sanctification, chapter 13, we find a description of the inward movements and strivings that are involved in a genuine pursuit of practical holiness. And I ask you this morning, I ask myself this morning, what, what are those inward activities of genuine holiness? And are we engaged in them on a regular daily basis? Are we, as the hymn we sang a few moments ago, taking time to be holy? Because it requires time to be holy. It requires that we be in the Word. It requires that we be in prayer. It requires that we be engaged in fighting sin. In fact, in this chapter I'm referring to here, chapter 13 on sanctification, the writers of the confession say that holiness, true holiness, practical holiness, genuine holiness involves 
submission to the word of God and to the Holy Spirit. Submitting to God's will, not mine. Endeavoring to oppose the inward impulses that lead to sin and disobedience. You mean I'm supposed to resist those impulses? Absolutely. Those impulses to sin, those impulses to be disobedient are to be resisted. They are to be fought against. You are to wage war against them. Endeavoring to oppose the inward impulses of sin, combating the lusts that swell up within us and striving to weaken and to mortify them. How often do we talk about mortification of sin? How often do we talk about the need to stand against the lusts of the flesh? It also involves asking God for the strength and the endurance to prevail over them to prevail over them. And these efforts, as I stated just a few moments ago, are to extend to every aspect of our conduct, not just the way that we conduct ourselves here. It's so easy to seem holy on a Sunday morning. But does this extend to every aspect of our life? even to those times when we are in secret, even in those times when we are away from others, are our thoughts and our motivations and our actions consistent with what they should be as a holy person? Needless to say, friends, no believer can progress in any of these activities apart from the Spirit's enabling we admit that freely this morning. These are things that we cannot do in our own strength. But the duty is ours nonetheless. The duty to pursue practical holiness is ours by virtue of who we are, by virtue of what God deserves from us. The question is, do we pursue them diligently? Are we making an effort to be holy people? Are we taking time to be holy? That's where the rubber hits the road. That gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? I trust that we are desiring and laboring and striving this morning to be holy people just as our Father is holy. And if you are trying to do that by the grace of God and by his enabling, and you're weary in doing so. The way forward is hard, and nobody said that the way forward would be easy if they were being honest with you. The way forward is hard. Don't be discouraged. Take heart, for you shall reap if you faint not. You shall reap if you faint not. In fact, brethren, I'm often asked this question. In fact, it may be the most common question that I get from people in a counseling session when we're talking about an issue or a problem. People will ask the question, Pastor, how can I know the will of God for my life? How can I know the will of God for my life? God, in his word, does, does he have some specific guidance 
on what I am to pursue as a believer in Jesus Christ? Does he? And on many occasions, I have turned to Peter's final words here on this topic in 1 Peter chapter 1. For as a faithful shepherd, Peter takes his readers to the Old Testament scriptures here in verse 16. He, he takes them in reference to Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44 in order to renew their minds in order to renew their minds, in order to help them to resist the temptation to conform to this world. And he presents to them this same message that we have considered this morning, for he says, it is written, or in other words, as we look to the scriptures, understand that this has already been recorded for you, that God has already made the way plain. And that is, it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Now, I want you to notice something about this statement. This statement is not merely a command. When you look at it at face value, it looks like a command. But it's also a promise. It's also a promise. For God has not only revealed the path to holiness to you, and made it plain. But he also promises through his son to make it real in you. Notice the language of the statement. It is written, you shall be holy. You shall be. God will make you so. God will do the work. Making us holy, sanctifying us is the Spirit's word. We shall be holy just as he is holy. Because that's what happens over the course of time through the means of grace. The children are made like the Father. So yes, you have a command. I have a command. It's a command that we need to take seriously. And yet it's also a promise. It's also a promise. God promises through his Son to make this matter of holiness a reality in you. Given that this is the case, given that this is the truth, may God receive all the glory through the preached word today, and may the church of God, may you and I as the people of God, prosper in holiness under the sound of his preaching. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you this morning for your word and for its renewing power. We thank you for revealing to us plainly in Scripture what your will is. What is the will of God for our lives? That we be holy. In fact, it's more important that we pursue that than many other things that we get so preoccupied about. Decisions about jobs, decisions about finances, decisions about politics, whatever might be on the table, pale in comparison to our responsibility to be holy people. And your word is clear that we are to be holy and that we shall be, by your Spirit, made holy. And so we would ask this morning, Father, that your Spirit would speak to each of us this morning and help us to wrestle with this matter 
Help us to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, are we holy people? Do we even know what holiness is? Do we even care? In fact, if we're here this morning and we don't really care for this topic at all, are we Christians? Because Christians are by nature holy people. Christians are by nature like their holy father. We have no desire we're putting forth no effort towards holiness, then we need to examine our own hearts and ask ourselves, is there really a work of grace within us? Have we really been given new life through the Spirit of God? And if we have not, 